Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, and to the broadcast. I'm Greg Masters, your host, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru, and the publisher of the blog ACOWatch.com. This is the second broadcast in the weekly series ACO Watch: A Midweek Review, where we monitor, analyze, and discuss the emergence of market entrants as accountable care organizations, as well as the soon-to-be-expected regulatory guidance and industry input. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest Dr. Kent Bottles. Dr. Bottles has been a president of a Minnesota healthcare collaborative, a chief medical officer of a large health system, a medical school professor, and a chief knowledge officer of a biotech startup company, startup genomics company. He's now an independent consultant, writer, keynoter, noted medical blogger, as well as key thought leader in the social media space for healthcare. So welcome, Kent. Hey, Greg. Thanks to be with you. Nice to have you. Glad you joined us. Kent, you wrote an article for the healthcare blog, I think, in September titled Accountability, Accountable Care Organizations, and Human Mindsets. Tell us what you concluded based on this construct for healthcare reform in general and ACOs in particular. Well, yeah, that that was a thought piece, I think. And I guess I'm more interested in the cultural things that we have to do as physicians to decrease per capita cost and increase quality. I mean, I see that as the big challenge for all of us. If we don't decrease per capita cost, then America will not be very competitive globally, and we will continue to decline. Um, We also have to increase quality because our quality is not so good right now. And there's lots of technical things like what is the legal structure that you use to create a vehicle to accept the global payment and then divvy it up between the hospital and the pharmacist and the pathologist and the radiologist and the surgeon. And and I think those are very important. Those technical kind of tasks are incredibly important. But we don't really know what the definition of an ACO is yet at all. And I'm more interested in, well, what's it going to take for people to get along culturally to actually make this thing work? So that's kind of a preamble, I guess. And and I've been kind of amazed and a little bit surprised and a little bit depressed by how hard it is to hold people accountable in health. Um, you know, we, we just saw the new recent New England Journal of Medicine article that said after 10 years of a lot of hard work in North Carolina – there wasn't a whole lot of improvement in quality. Um, so if we're trying to decrease the per capita cost and increase the quality, we're going to have to do a better job of holding hospitals and doctors and patients themselves accountable. So the blog that I wrote was about human mindsets. And the, the main thing I was trying to get at is why is it so hard for physicians to be held accountable, for hospitals to be held accountable for really great healthcare outcomes. And and I started off with a Steve Ballmer uh, quote from Microsoft where he said, great companies have high cultures of accountability. It comes with this culture of criticism I was talking about before, and I think our culture is strong on that. And then the other quote I started with was from a guy named David Brin. When it comes to privacy and accountability, people always demand the former for themselves and the latter for everybody else. So we like our privacy, but we don't want to be held accountable and I guess what really was the key 
finding I found is that there's a Stanford social scientist um, named Carol Dweck who's written a book called Mindset. And she's discovered that there's two types of people in the world, people with a fixed mindset and people with a growth mindset. And that people with a fixed mindset believe that intelligence is static and you get it at birth. Um, they want to appear smart, so they say that effortless success is desired because it, it shows you're a natural and, and you've got ability. They get defensive when they're faced with obstacles, and they ignore useful negative feedback. And these people feel threatened when others are successful, and they plateau really early in their careers and achieve a lot less than their full potential. She goes on to say that there's other people that have a growth mindset who believe that intelligence can be developed, which leads to a desire to learn by embracing challenges. They persist when they're faced with obstacles. They don't give up. Um, criticism and feedback is an opportunity for them to learn and grow. And the success of others is uh, not something to be jealous about, but uh, has lessons and inspiration. And these folks tend to do much better achievement-wise than you'd predict from their IQ scores. So I guess what I'm worried about is why are we so resistant to have individual physician report cards? How can you have an accountable care organization if you don't have accountability? And I guess I'd, I'd finish this long-winded first answer with just one study that Dweck talks about in her book, Mindset, which was a study of University of Hong Kong students, which took advantage of the fact that instruction was all in English at this uh, school and that some of the folks that were entering the school at the university were not fluent in English. The investigators then did, did a, um, a, uh, a study which, which uh, measured the mindset of the students and divided them into two different groups, a group that had a fixed mindset and a group that had a growth mindset. And there's, a, there's a questionnaire you can use that's been vetted that seems to work for that. They then asked the subjects if they would take a class for students who needed to improve their English skills. And the fixed mindset students weren't interested in such a class, even though they needed improvement. The growth mindset students were anxious to sign up for the remedial course to do better. So I, I guess I'm more interested in the cultural aspects that are going to have to be addressed if physicians and hospital administrators and patients really do embrace the concept of an accountable care organization with real accountability. Does that make any sense, Greg, at all, or is that totally off the wall? Oh, no. I mean, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm resonating here. i got a, a couple of questions. So um, if we vet the entire healthcare industry from uh, physicians on one end to institutional service providers on the other, uh, what do you think would drop out at the end of that filter as to whether it's a modal fixed or growth mindset? Oh, I think that almost everybody in healthcare has a fixed mindset. I don't think we deal well with failure. I think because of the malpractice issues and the way that we're trained, um, we're not really very well equipped to figure out that you do a lot better if you can learn from failures and if you have sort of a, an open honest uh, culture of safety. I mean, I think, you know, Don Berwick at IHI and, and other folks, Sentara comes to mind on the East Coast, have really worked on a culture of safety or a culture of quality in hospitals. And in those places, you have to be willing to accept and give feedback. You have to be willing to admit when you've made a mistake. You've got to be willing to um, report close uh, mistakes or, or what they call it in airline close encounters or things that almost became a disaster but didn't, if you don't look at all those things, then you can't get better. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff done that 
uh, failure is a lot better teacher than success. Um, yet most of us don't like to be told when we're failing. And I think that that's uh, something that, I guess that's why I wrote the article, is that I think that um, social scientists are now figuring out ways to try to encourage people to have a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. And there was an article in today's New York Times that actually blew me away in terms of this entire subject. It was about uh, on a hunt for what makes gamers keep gaming. Uh, people that use video games are engaged, focused, and happy. And this article asked, how many employers wish that they could say that about a tenth of their workforce? And so they talk about that by the age of 21, the typical American has spent 10,000 hours playing computer games, and they love it, but they're bored the heck out of school. And you just saw in today's paper that there was a global um, assessment of achievement around the world, and the folks in Shanghai, China, came out on top in math, science, and reading, and the 15-year-olds in America came out in the middle of the pack. So these folks are saying, gee, maybe we ought to learn from video games, why people like them so much. Could we take those learnings and use that to solve real-life problems or to solve real-life problems in an accountable care organization? So I find that fascinating that some of these new disruptive technologies allow us to learn from failure. And I guess the, the way that video games work, if you think about it, is that you can practice. You can practice over and over again, whereas in real life, you can't practice very much. And so there's been a couple of studies done that, that really shocked me, that it turns out that uh, patients with social anxiety are much more likely to reveal themselves to an avatar, to a robot that responds, than to a human being. And the idea is that the robot is not nearly as judging, judgmental, and that patients actually reveal themselves to these electronic avatars. So I'm wondering if, gosh, if the future of medicine and accountable care organizations is avatars like Second Life and is sort of cyber therapy as opposed to one-on-one -on -one, uh, doctor-to-patient therapy, which would solve our workforce problem, wouldn't it, Greg? Wow. Yeah, this is spectacular stuff. Um, it, I get it. <laughs> Probably so. One of my thoughts is, um, you know, I was thinking earlier that the, in those two buckets of growth versus fixed, you could might extend it and possibly see a correlation that there's that, that, that those two kinds of people also break down into those who do things right and those who do the right things. And those who do things right are more concerned about policies and procedures and those who are concerned about doing the right thing are much more flush with discretion and situational specific solutions. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's some attempt out there in academia to connect those dots, if it even if they even connect. Oh, I think you're right. The, I mean, I think if you think yeah. about it, people have different levels of consciousness, and you know, we know that um, there are some folks in any organization that just want to be told what to do and follow the rules. But we now know in a global economy you want employees that can do what's right, not just follow the rules. I mean, the rules don't always apply to everything. So I, I think you're, you're making a, a plea for healthcare workers to develop the level of their consciousness. There's a whole bunch of work being done on that. Probably the best book on that that I know is Immunity to Change by Robert Kagan, K-E-G-A-N, out of Harvard, who's got a wonderful 
change management approach that uh, I've used a little bit that seems to work quite well. Kagan's big thing is that the reason it's so hard for us to change is that we want opposing things. Uh, he gives an example in the beginning of the book of a person that wants to lose weight, but he also wants to maintain his membership in an extended, very loving Italian family that every weekend wants him to eat homemade pasta to please grandma. He wants to both lose weight but also still love his grandma. And and that makes a lot of sense to me is that we've got to understand. And perhaps, um, you know, it might be useful if doctors would be look at it and say, I want to be held accountable, but I also want to maintain my salary the way it is or the money I'm making the way it is. And until you see that some of those things work against each other, you're not going to be able to make the change. I mean, I was shocked that, according to Kagan, when cardiologists talk to people about making changes in their diet or smoking or exercise, only one in seven can make the change, even though the cardiologist says, if you don't make this change, you're probably going to die pretty soon. So we as homo sapiens have a hard time changing, and I think that's a, a problem for hospitals and, and doctors as we go forward with accountable care organizations. I mean, I don't see any way out of it. I think we have to decrease per capita cost. I don't think we can continue to have 17% of our GDP spent on health care. And to do that, I don't see any way that hospitals and doctors aren't going to get less money in the future. I mean, we just have to decrease the amount of money going to doctors and going to hospitals. Uh, when I wrote that in a, on a comment on a blog yesterday, someone wrote back on, on the comment and said, no, hospitals will continue to get more money. Well, if they do, then the American economy will continue to decline, and we're in big trouble. So, you know, um, I, I heard that one consulting firm is telling their hospitals that they better uh, figure out how to thrive on Medicaid, not Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement, because you ought to be simulating what you can do with 30 or 40 percent less revenue and still decrease per capita cost and increase quality. So it's a big, right, big but, but, uh, issue. Right, Go ahead. But make it up on, but, but make, on that Medicaid thing, but make it up on, you know, substantially increased volume <laughs> given the expectations of enrollment in the Medicaid program. Yeah, that won't work. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, to me, an ACO is changing the hospital from an acute care hospital to a, a group that's going to take care of a population of people across the whole continuum of care. So suddenly primary care becomes more important. Suddenly prevention becomes more important because if you're getting a global payment, you don't want people to be in the hospital ever. You want to do all the things you can to keep them out of the hospital. And that's a big, big change in mindset for most providers in America today. Yeah. We, uh, my brain is just firing multiple directions here, but um, I guess on the, on, on, the, on the medicine side of the question is uh, 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 what are the obstacles in front of, say, payment equity and payment reform culture versus perhaps policy given these social scientist insights about people? Well, I mean, you know, um, there was a, you know, you and I are both big Twitter fans, so we try to keep track of what's going on in the world. And I saw this week or last week that there was a big uh, meeting of health plans, and, and they had some experts there. And I think Jeff Goldsmith, who I think is a pretty smart guy at a UVA, um, is quoted in an article saying, I think this is a stupid idea, accountable care organizations. Manage care without the risk. It's like gin and tonic without the gin. How do you end up making choices if you're not forced to make them? 
And Goldsmith goes on to say in this article, quote, what aligning incentives means to hospital executives is you doctors work for me and we'll do it and you'll do what I tell you to do. So clearly, um, you know, there's going to be some tension and some conflict um, because I don't think most physicians who are not employed by a hospital system are used to being an employee of a large organization. And I've worked with some. Um, it's a different mindset. It's a different yeah. set of values. Um, it's, it's a cultural thing. And, again, that's why I get back to I think culture is much more important than the technical details. That I mean, we don't even know what the technical details are. I mean, I saw on Twitter the other day that I guess last week Don Brewerick was talking to the National Committee on Quality Assurance in D.C., and, and he's worried that, that uh, quote, you've discovered you've always been an ACO. Cloaking the status quo is not authentic. I mean, it, now everybody wants to be an ACO. We don't even know what it is yet. Um, and so I think, you know, but to me an ACO is taking care of a population, uh, you know, having preventative measures, having better coordination of care and decreasing per capita cost and increasing quality. But that's going to require a whole new set of competencies, especially for primary care physicians, if you want to be successful as an ACO. And those are competencies that most primary care physicians today don't have. Yeah, yeah I, I love Goldsmith's insights, and, it, and really it's hard to disagree with him, uh, even before factoring in these social uh, scientist insights about resistance to change. Uh, but, you know, what are the prospects for it actually being different this time? Uh, you know, given the scale of the reform that we're trying to implement, do you have any hope? Oh, here? I don't. And I don't what, think. It, I don't think it'll be different at all. I think that, as usual, in human institutions, will muddle through. I mean, you know, last year I couldn't. Uh, I get. I got asked every week to talk about medical homes. This year, I'm asked to talk all over the country about ACOs. They're just buzzwords, but the actual problem we're trying to solve doesn't really change. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult to divvy up that money of a global payment. I think we'll definitely go from fee-for-service to global payments because I don't know any other way to control costs. And I think you'll see a much bigger emphasis on shared decision-making because I think that's the one thing that's actually been shown to be a way to, if you actually sit down and talk to patients and explain to them the trade-offs, then you actually have a shot at decreasing per capita cost and increasing quality. There was a recent Cochrane review. Cochrane's a really good evidence-based medicine outfit that talked about real shared decision-making with real um, doctors having tools to really explain the trade-offs. And when people were really uh, explain the trade-offs, which they don't get paid for now, then uh, patients chose 25% of the time not to have the costly procedure or not to have the costly test. So I think shared decision-making is going to be a big part of this, and that hasn't really uh, gotten much traction out there in the real world of McAllen, Texas, or the real world of Los Angeles or Miami or, or Newark, New Jersey. So, um, you know, are ACOs going to work? I have no idea. I, I think that they certainly won't work if we don't really talk about the cultural problems of di dividing up the money and talk about the cultural problems of, to make an ACO work, in my mind, uh, primary care is going to have to do a lot more work and actually maybe get a little bit more of the money, and our specialists going to allow that to happen in the vehicle that divvies up the, um, the global payment. 
So, so, so muddling through version 3.0, perhaps, uh, if that's the best we can hope for. What does physician leadership look like here, particularly when, um, when you look at, uh, you know, you've got the AMA and, and medical societies arguing for an independent, untethered institutional route, and then you've got the health systems and AHIP and so on and so forth all arguing for, hey, no such thing as independent docs. We've got to corral them through some entity and make sure that, you know, we're, if not we're at the leading edge, we're certainly part of that conversation. What, what does leadership look like there? Well, you know, I, I don't have an MBA and I don't have, you know, a fancy Ph.D. in organizational psychology, but I've led some organizations. And, I mean, to me, leaders only do four things. And, and the four things are, one, look around the environment, and make an environmental scan and see what the challenge is and see what the opportunities are out there. And two, you then take that vision that you've described that can inspire yourself and inspire the people that work for you, inspire everybody. So you take that vision and you, you translate it into strategies and tactics. Then you take those strategies and tactics, one of which might be integrating physicians or employing them. One of them might be creating a legal entity that can accept a global payment. So you have a vision you translate it into strategies and tactics, you assign that to the right people, and you hold them accountable. I mean, that's all leaders do. Um, and I don't see most physicians or most hospital administrators, for that matter, um, you know, being honest about the vision. As I, as I look around the healthcare environment, I mean, it's fundamentally clear to me there's going to be less money. It's fundamentally clear to me we've got to decrease per capita cost, and it's fundamentally clear to me we've got to increase the quality of the care we give. And that New England Journal of Medicine article about North Carolina just shows how incredibly difficult that is. With all the fine work of IHI, and they're meeting right now in Orlando, Florida, um, we still haven't done a very good job of holding individual providers and individual hospitals accountable for better outcomes. Uh, Michael Millinson wrote a a pretty scathing uh, blog piece yesterday on health affairs that talked about that. But To me, um, leadership means really looking at the environment and saying, you know, we've got to do better, and, you know, we've got to then say that what we've got to do is decrease cost and increase quality. Because if physician leaders are trying to say what we want to do is take good care of patients but also preserve the income that we're getting now, I don't think you get anywhere. So um, I think we've got to have a frank, honest conversation about what has to happen and how we have to do it if we really put patients first is our, is our true north. If we really want to do what's best for patients, then we've got to improve on that, the quality uh, initiatives that were reported out on the North Carolina hospitals. And we haven't done a very good job of that. Yeah, and that, and that may, in fact, be uh, a wild card, you know, the, this notion of patient-centric and, and what does that look like. And, is, is there any uh, vision or innovation being demonstrated there at the pilot and uh, demonstration project levels to make medical homes more patient-centric and less provider-driven culture entities? Well, I think they have to be patient-centric, and that's not to let the patients off the hook. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, we all know that if we eliminated all the errors in healthcare, if everybody had access to really good physicians that had good decision support and always made the right diagnosis and always prescribed the right antibiotic, that would only um, decide 10% of whether I stay healthy or not. 
So we we know that, that what patients do is a bigger part of whether they stay healthy. And by that I mean do they have lots of friends? Do they smoke? Do they exercise? Do they do they walk? Uh do they practice safe sex practices? I mean, all of those behavioral things that, that patients do that doctors can't make them do actually, you know, lend may have a much bigger impact on wellness than just uh the 10% that's medical care. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't clean up the 10%. Absolutely. I've spent my entire career trying to work on improving quality uh, of the 10%. But patients have a big responsibility as well that they can't, you know, smoke for 50 years and then expect to get a lung transplant and be fine. Um, You you know, that's a big, big issue. So, um, you know, again, I think everybody's got to change. And, I, you know, my experience in running collaboratives is nobody wants to be the first to change. But I think government's got to change, health plans have got to change, hospitals have got to change, doctors got to change. Um, and I think patients got to change. Employers have got to change. We've got to take accountability more seriously. So I don't think it's that hard to figure out what to do. I think what's hard is the cultural change and the politics of it. But why don't we just, why don't we just deem those with a fixed mindset as a social disorder and work on interventions to up-level them into growth mindsets, and then perhaps we can enable the change we want to see. Well, there you go. And they're just revising DSM, the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatry. So you could make a last-minute plea to include fixed mindset as a personality disorder, although they're eliminating narcissism, which I think is really interesting. (laughs) So, uh, no, I think think to me it's like, you know – but again, I mean, to get back to ACOs, which I think are incredibly important, we don't even know what an ACO is yet. I mean, uh, you know, Jonathan Bloom, who's the CMS deputy administrator on this uh, Friday lecture with Don Berwick, um, sketched out a few things, but they're going to so- supposedly tell us in mid-January. I mean, what he said was it's not a tool to dominate a market. Um, there's lots of different models, and they're evolving. Um, it could be large physician practices or small physician practices. Um, it's not something that's going to be like the CBO report in uh, 2008 about, a, you know, a one-sided shared savings. Um, they'll always have to put patients first. They'll always serve the chronically ill. They'll be data-rich organizations, so they'll need more access to data from parts A and B and D. And uh, we'll tell you what's going to happen in January. But, you know, the ACO concept is, is all over the place. I mean, You've got Karen Feinstein at the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative with one concept. Harold Miller's got some interesting ideas on his blog. Um, Shortel out of Berkeley's got a, a, a concept in some papers, and, and clearly Elliot Fisher has been writing about it at Dartmouth, and MedPAC has their own ideas. But, you know, to me, all of these, uh, these different kind of uh, things, and the CBO's bonus-eligible organization, I mean, they're not all the same. I mean, Harold Miller says an, an ACO doesn't necessarily have to be geographical area, and Elliot Fisher, as I read the Dartmouth articles, says it should just be one geographic area with hospitals and doctors. And, and so I, I think it's all over the place, and an ACO yeah. is kind of, you've seen one ACO, maybe you've seen one ACO, and it's hard to know what they really are. Right, exactly. And, and I'll add to that, boys, uh, Paul Keckley wrote on their a blog over um, that ACOs should be structured to assume risk eventually. CMS officials said the ACO final rule of next month will allow for multiple structures with the goal that the ACO go beyond shared savings models to assumption of risk. So my handwriting's on the wall there, you know, and, and sort of a, 
a light version of the Medicare Shared Savings Program that has no downside or teeth and it's just destined to fail. Well, you know, and, and I look at the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and there's a list in there of possible participants. And then we may be jumping the gun talking about hospitals and physicians, because in that legislation they talk about hospitals, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, social workers, dietitians, specialists, SNF people, rehab, long-term care facilities. I mean, I think what, what Medicare is saying is, boy, anybody that can efficiently take care of a population across the continuum of care that decreases per capita cost and increases quality, um, they're eligible to be an ACO without a doctor. Um, and that's why I'm only half kidding that maybe we ought to put together an ACO that's entirely um, avatars on Second Life. I love that idea. I love that. I think that's awesome. It leverages the insights, and it also puts into place what we've come to know about this gaming and virtual engagement. But can't well, we're, the other thing uh, is the, the guy up at, at the guy up at Partners who runs the Connected um, Center up there. I mean, I, I'm still trying to get my head around this, but they did a study supposedly. I haven't seen it written up, but I've heard it talked about. They did a study of discharge quick, planning. Kent, what? Kent, I'm discharge sorry to interrupt. But we, Kent, we, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. We have a hard stop in 40 seconds, so uh, no problem. Uh, there's a lot. There's, to, the, there's a study in Boston. Come. Study in Boston that patients preferred a robot for discharge planning to a real person. It's hard to believe, but it's true, evidently. Amazing. Anyway, I want to thank uh, my guest, Dr. Kent Bottles. Amazing uh, thoughts today on the program. Lots to cover, not enough time. Next week, my guest will be Dr. Gordon Moore, president of Ideal Medical Practices and former medical director of the Hello Health University. Dr. Moore will discuss the topic of direct medical practice, medical practices, medical homes, and HBOs. So please join us and stay involved. We'll do this on a weekly basis. Thanks again to Dr. Bottle. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Greg. Bye. Bye. Bye.